Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you chose to worship here at Grantham Church. My name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor at Grantham. If you've been paying attention to the news or social media, you've probably heard about what is happening at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. I'm personally convinced that there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and that the fire is apparently spreading to other places. It all began with a regular chapel service on Wednesday, February 8th. It was an average chapel service. I've, I've actually watched it. Uh, in some ways, you might even said it's, it was a little underwhelming. <laughs> as many of my messages are. (laughs) And I think that's interesting, right? Nothing special about it. It's an average service. The message, though, was on love. And it was specifically about experiencing God's love for yourself so you can love others like Jesus. After the benediction, a gospel choir sang a final chorus, and the atmosphere in the room changed. Uh, Those left in the room sensed a quiet but powerful presence of transcendence, they say. Chapel was officially over, but the students stayed. Word began to spread. The students prayed and sang. Soon there were testimonies, confessions of sins. Some are at the altar, some are praying in small groups around the room. Some are laughing, experiencing the joy of the Lord, others reading and reciting scripture, already seeing the fruit of what God was doing. There were no smoke machines, no loud music, no fiery preaching, no hype, just humble corporate worship. This continued 24 hours a day and has done so for the past 11, 12 days now. People are coming from all over the country, and not just our country, but literally the world, to experience what is happening here. And I know already you're, some of you are thinking theologically, you're like, "Eh, the Spirit's everywhere. That's true. But when you look at this positively, the people that are coming are mostly not the folks that can, you know, are coming to take a selfie and say, I was at Asbury, or to make some video and exploit the event for themselves. Most people, it seems, are coming based on the uh, maybe hours of video I have watched because they are hungry for God. And they're like, if God is coming down in some special way in this place, I want to experience it. 
And people are experiencing it, and they're taking that fire, as I said, to other places. It's spreading to other universities. I saw yesterday it is happening at an office building in downtown Minneapolis. Visitors have said that within minutes they're feeling convicted of their sin. So they come into the room, and within minutes they feel the presence of the Lord, and they sense a great conviction about the sin in their life. They say the presence of God, specifically his peace, his joy, and his love is so palpable. It's so thick that you could cut it with a knife. It's so humble. It's so humble. (laughs) People are experiencing reconciliation with God and their neighbors. People they've had problems with, students to students, faculty, other teachers, administrators, freedom from sin, healings even, illumination, new direction in their lives, a renewed passion for Christ in the scriptures. After one student shared that he was out of work, he wasn't asking for this, but he shared that he was out of work, money starts falling from the balcony. People are rushing up to the stage to throw money at the stage to help this gentleman. Many have said they thought they'd only been there a a short while, maybe like 30 minutes or so, but it actually had been hours. It's as if the, the veil between heaven and earth has thinned. You know, we've used that language here at Grantham. Heaven and earth have this unique intersecting, overlapping relationship, and that veil, that partition between heaven and earth, it grows really thin, and time seems to become irrelevant. And folks, if you're feeling a bit skeptical about this, remember, this is mostly being led by Generation Z, a generation that has been ridden with and and overridden and known nothing but polarization and anxiety and depression and mental illness from the shutdown to the politics to the violence. They're leading it. There are no superstars. In fact, the, the faculty, the administrators, the student ministries there are doing their best to keep Christian celebrities out. They've told certain news organizations, no, thanks, we don't want you here. Pray for them. I can only imagine what that has been like. You know, they, they even screen people before they share, not just asking them questions, what are you going to say, so you don't say something heretical or, or throw this off and, and go off on the crazy train here. But they're, they're going through a prayerful process. The, the folks that are leading, they're making sure they're rotating them so that nobody is getting all the attention. <laughs> and they don't have a manual for this, but you would think they do. They're, they're doing their best to just humbly receive what God is pouring out as long as it's being poured out. As you might expect, as I've already hinted at, some have been critical in their response, scoffing at the idea that it's genuine because the school maybe don't, doesn't align with their beliefs, or saying, let's wait and see if it bears fruit and has a social justice impact. And let me say, look, I, I do understand that. I thought those things, in fact, that was the first thought I had. And what I'm about to share with you was the first thing I thought, and then the Lord convicted me of it. (laughs) Because I can understand these concerns, but I don't think it's helpful or becoming of a disciple. Uh, Some have quoted this passage from 
from Acts. In fact, I think this came up in a staff conversation we had when we first heard the news break. And again, I was thinking this way myself. They refer to this time where Gamaliel, one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus to death, you'll remember, after this, when the disciples experienced the resurrected Christ, they begin to preach the good news. And the Sanhedrin, again, the same council that condemned Jesus, didn't like this, and they want to put an end to it. Some of them want to do the same thing to them that they did to Jesus, but they feel like a second time that's not going to go so well. And so Gamaliel says, hey, remember in the past we've, we've done these kinds of things, uh, or, or in the past we've seen false leaders and false messiahs rise up, and what happens? And they usually fizzle out. So, you know, let's just let it go, because if it's of God and we oppose it, well, you're, you're fighting against God. And if it's not, and if it's of man, it'll come to an end. And so some people have referred to this and say, you know, that, that's, that's the approach we should take, the wait and see approach. And while I admit that there is wisdom in there, you certainly don't want to oppose God. I affirm that. We shouldn't forget that this is coming from a skeptical Pharisee who showed no interest in engaging with the move of the Spirit through the Messiah Jesus, but rather in keeping the peace and maintaining the status quo. Now, how do we know this? Because what does he do after he tells them not to preach the gospel anymore? He has them beaten. (laughs) and says, now go. We don't want to see you again. We don't want to hear from you again. Stop preaching the good news about Jesus. So my friends, according to the scripture, disciples of Jesus are not first and foremost wait and see people who look upon an outpouring of the Spirit with a critical eye and a cynical heart. Rather, we are come and see people. Remember some disciples even did that. Come and see. You remember the, the um, thank you Siri, uh, you remember the, <laughs> the Samaritan woman said, come and see the man who's told me everything about my life. Remember, I've, you remember the disciple that came to another would-be disciple and says, come and see. I've met the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. No way. Yes way, Ted. Some of you will get the 80s reference. We're come and see people. And our hearts ought to be humble and open to a move of God as we ask the Lord to help us see where is he at work. Lord, are you at work? Could you be at work? Could, could this be what we've longed for? And I think maybe Jesus' followers maybe should even risk being seen as gullible instead of being cynical. As I heard one person put it this past week, we ought to be more curious and be, be more curious than cautious be led by hope rather than by fear, or in this case, the skeptical resistance of a Pharisee. Because what's happening to Asbury, according to their own leadership, and I know some, of some folks I've followed for a long time, scholars I respect who are, who are saying this, this appears to be the answer to many years of prayer. And it's not the first time this kind of thing has happened at Asbury. And for all we know, maybe even God's, it's God's response to the prayers of his people throughout this country in the last couple of decades, including prayers of some of us here at Grantham Church. So I invite us to stay open to that this morning, especially if you've taken the position of Gamaliel up to this point. Because what is happening in Asbury presents us with an opportunity, I think, an opportunity this morning to reflect on a biblical and historical review, uh, uh, view of revival. And so I want to invite us to come with an open heart, come with an open mind, 
And may your, may your soul be pliable in the hands of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. What is revival, really? In the Old Testament, there is not a single Hebrew word for revival, but there is a pattern. Think about this. It looks something like this. After spiritual decline and cultural upheaval, God visits, he awakens, and he revives his people, which is evident by several things, by the confession of sin, by the repenting of idols, release from bondage and oppression, that can be physically and spiritually, holy living and a return to the Lord in his covenant, a renewed passion for the scriptures. One clear example of this happens in 2 Kings chapter 21. Some of you know this story. This is when Josiah digs the law of God out of storage, <laughs> brushes the dust off of it, has it read to God's people. From that experience came sweeping change in practices in Israel, social reforms, and return to God. But it's Isaiah's experience in the temple that gives us a real clear picture of what renewal looks like when we personally experience God. Let's take a look at that together. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would. Isaiah chapter 6. Just keep your Bible open because we're going to turn to another passage here in just a moment. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, says this, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord, the prophet Isaiah says. Now, King Uzziah reigned a long time, and he was a good king up until the very end. How many of us have seen even stories of this recently in the news of great godly leaders who at the end of a very long and prosperous ministry make some really stupid decisions and mistakes and totally undermines everything. This had happened with King Uzziah, and any time you have a change in, in, in kingship, you're open to spiritual uh, upheaval, cultural upheaval, spiritual decline, and Isaiah is concerned based on the sinfulness of King Uzziah, what is to come. So he goes to the place of worship. So this is what we should read into that. When, when the, it was the year that King Uzziah died that he said, I saw the Lord. He, he was sitting on a lofty throne in the train of his robe filled the temple. One person reminded us that Isaiah probably went to church like most of us on a normal Sunday, not expecting to meet God. But God actually shows up. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. These are angels. With two wings, they covered their faces. Two covered their feet. Two, they flew. It seems as if this is telling us that this is like we see in other places and even the book of Revelation, protecting Isaiah from seeing the full glory of God. For no one can live seeing the full glory of God. And they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. Might be a way of thinking of this, holy, set apart, but also higher, 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 higher is this God than us. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation and the entire building was filled with smoke. After, again, hours of watching what's happening in Asbury, I can't think about 
the similarities here. Then I said, it's all over. Isaiah said, I'm doomed for I'm a sinful man. Notice right away in the presence of God, what does he recognize? His own sin. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet, I, yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he'd taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it, but it didn't burn his lips. Look, he says, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed. This is a purifying fire. Your sins are forgiven. And then I heard the Lord asking, after this great experience of God, whom shall I send to, to be a messenger to my people? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Inevitably, we can see this personal renewal, maybe we even call it the beginnings of revival, does end with mission. Amen? Now let's consider what happens when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I want to begin in Acts chapter 2 with verse 14. This is after the Spirit. Remember Jesus said to his disciples after he had ascended to the Father, go wait in Jerusalem, go to the place that they had experienced the Last Supper, the upper room. Wait there for the gift that I'm sending you because without it you can't do anything, right? Jesus had said that a couple different times. They go, they wait, and before you know it, the Holy Spirit shows up like a mighty wind in the room, tongues of fire over their heads. Many, many, many things of the Spirit begin to happen. And in verse 14, as people begin to scoff and to question and maybe even say, let's wait and see, Look at what happens in verse 14. And Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And then Peter preaches a spontaneous sermon. Quotes Joel, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That is, they'll proclaim, they'll preach with power. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I'll pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. Peter's referring to this apocalyptic language of Joel. It's a, something of God is happening here, not of man. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before that great glorious day the Lord arrives. This is, the, this is the sign of the times. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, when the Holy Spirit is at work, it will be evident I hear Peter saying this. Of course, the Spirit is always at work. But often in the small things of everyday life, as we work out this long, hard road of obedience, of discipleship. So what we're talking about here, though, is an outpouring, an extraordinary sense of God's presence when all hope seems lost. When people are starting to despair, the Spirit comes 
unexpectedly, mysteriously. I mean, you think about that. I mean, it's not as if God comes to you and say, how would you like revival to come? And takes notes. No. He didn't come to his people and say, how would you like Messiah to come? Now, they had certain ideas about that, didn't they? And Jesus overturns them all. So we should expect the unexpected. We should expect it. This outpouring, this extraordinary sense of God's presence in the lives of his people, a feeling and an anointing and empowering to know him better and to do his work in the world. And this is always, it always begins with individual renewal before revival comes. I think now would be a good time to define some terms here, so let me define it this way. Now, you don't have to take these to the bank, I mean, so to speak. Uh, <clears throat> you won't find this in the dictionary that put this way. And if you don't like it, toss it out. I don't care. But this is just the way I wanted to find some of these terms, maybe to help us think about this in an orderly kind of fashion. I've defined it this way. Renewal is when God gives new life to the heart of an individual, experiencing God's love, grace, and power anew. Revival is God giving new life to a community of faith. They experience a fresh power to live as disciples on mission. And then a movement is the spirit moves beyond localized revival. And then new churches and ministries emerge marked by a certain ethos and mission. Some of you live through what is known as the Jesus Movement of the 1960s and 70s, and out of that came Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard Churches and other things as well, but that was just some of them. And then there is an awakening, and an awakening is, I think, best described as an entire society being impacted by a mighty move of God where we see mass conversions, church growth, systemic changes, missionaries being sent out. And as we've seen all these through church history, we've seen all of these through church history. But for the sake of time, let's just briefly think about what this has looked like in our own country. Beginning with the first great awakening in the U.S. colonies before the American Revolution, between 1730 and 1755, preachers like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and John Wesley, who own denomination has been impacted by began the Methodist church, called people to repent of their sins, to live holy, spirit-filled lives. This was the first time we see a real concerted effort to do this outdoor preaching thing, to take the proclamation of the gospel outside of the church building. And some of them, like Jonathan Edwards, just very in a monotone voice, stood up before big crowds and read his manuscript, and the spirit just falls. Our own denomination, let me remind you, has been impacted by this movement. This is why we say that our faith should involve our emotions. We should expect to experience God in real tangible ways. And I know it's real easy to say that when it's up on your, you know, up on your bulletin board or something you, you say when you're teaching a class on Brethren in Christ Foundations. But it's another thing to accept it and embrace it when it's happening. That's what I would encourage us to do this morning. In the early 19th century, revivals in Kentucky and Tennessee led to the second great awakening in America. Charles Finney, 
Francis Asbury, of which we get Asbury University and Seminary, are just two leaders associated with these revivals. Like the First Great Awakening, these revivals not only led to changed lives, people turning from sin, being filled with the Spirit, they, they had a social impact on the society at large. The creation of educational institutions, the founding of hospitals and missionary societies, they fueled the fight for equality, for women's rights, for antebellum reforms, and for the abolition movement. In time, it produced those things. The same sort of thing continued through the 19th and the 20th centuries. Some of you have lived to see some of this stuff. The urban revivals in Chicago, the Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles that birthed Pentecostalism, the post-World War II revivals, the Jesus Movement, as I said, of the 1960s and 70s, the Asbury revivals, the last big one being in 1970, the other college revivals of the 1990s. And while there were certainly things that came from these revivals that weren't helpful, I admit that, there are clear signs that God was pouring His Spirit out on His people. He was drawing people to Himself during times of spiritual and cultural crisis, awakening the church from her lethargy and empowering the body of Christ to move forward with the mission of God. And it's not about the methods. It's not about the methods, but some have tried to do that. We usually call it revivalism. Right? You've probably seen this. And some of you, the bad experiences you've had was with revivalism. This is where you put up a sign and it says, God's Spirit's going to come April 27th through whatever. Really? You know? And then what we try to do is manufacture revival. And we often end up manipulating people and doing a lot of harm that way. We're not talking about this sort of thing. And again, the methods, they, they change through time. It's, it's, it's like what C.S. Lewis said in the story of Narnia. You remember that? He, he said, you'll never enter Narnia the same way twice. And it's kind of like that with the Lord's Spirit. And so we should remember that we can't take something that's happened before and try to do the same thing with the same ingredients and manufacture it. No, what we're talking about here is something that comes unexpectedly and, and surprising to us, but no doubt is real. So I, I resonate with that, and I'm, I truly am sorry if you've experienced this revivalism that has turned you off and made you even cynical to what is happening in Asbury. I really do. And if that's you, I, I hope this morning the Spirit will enable you to see that and admit it, that that's what might be keeping you from opening your heart to what's happening and, and, and that God would heal your heart. I believe he can. We can't, we can't bring the spirit, provoke the spirit like the prophets of Baal who were screaming up at the heavens and cutting themselves. You remember that? And Elijah says, why don't you scream louder? He apparently can't hear you. <laughs> That's not the way revival comes to God's people. And I hope that you'll be encouraged by that, that it, that it is real. It is real, but we can't manufacture it. We can't reenact Pentecost. While we might see extraordinary signs of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, miracles, healings, this sort of thing, we're not trying to manufacture it. No, revival, movement, and awakenings, they come by God's Spirit. And, and please hear me say this, please hear me say this, it's never perfect. 
You will never be perfect. The church will never be perfect. If you're, if you're watching from afar, waiting to see something that looks a little shady, or someone trying to exploit it, or something that's a little off, well, there's no surprise there. You will find it. Often what happens with real revival is heretics, you know, sort of come and try to piggyback off of it and exploit it, and use it for their own purposes. You probably will find the selfies and say, I'm an Asbury, let me give you my hot take. And I'm turned off by that just as much as many of you are. But don't let that keep you from seeing what God is doing and what God can do. You'll always have the good, the bad, and the crazy all at the same time. It's always going to be this way. I I hate to crash your idealism, but, but that's reality. So what then does revival look like according to Scripture? You might take some notes on some of this or take a picture of it anyway on the screen. And this is where I'm going to rely heavily this morning on the thoughts of of Tim Keller. He's a a Reformed author and retired pastor. I know I'm Anabaptist. He's Reformed. But, you know, God does good things with other people too. I have great respect for Tim Keller. Our staff has been reading stuff uh, from Tim, and you know, again, you don't have to agree with all of his views um, to see that God is using him and is speaking through him powerfully uh, as, a, as a thought leader um, at, the, at the end of his life. He actually has, I think, pancreatic cancer now. This is what he says, how he defines what a revival is. He says it's an intensification of the ordinary works of the Spirit, and this is just some of them. We see an intensification of the conviction of sin, of conversions to Christ, people coming to accept Jesus as Lord. We see an intensification of the assurance of God's love. And I just think about all the testimonies that I've heard of people there in the chapel there at Asbury having a a, a very real sense and felt, felt sense of God's presence and of his love like never before. An intensification of, of, of deliverance, meaning being set free from spiritual bondage, some from mental illness, and some even apparently, I don't know if it's real, uh, you know, again, I wasn't there, but apparently even the casting out of demons. We see an intensification of forgiveness and reconciliation. I, I've heard testimony of one student who said she came in very skeptical, very cynical, and set up in the balcony, and she was harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, and in a matter of minutes, it was gone. There was, there was just not like, it wasn't even any memory of it. It was just a shadow. It had been lifted from her. We see repentance, of course, and, and a return to holy living, taking the teachings of Jesus seriously. And so Keller says this. He says, when these things happen, three things specifically you're going to see. Number one, Sleepy Christians wake up. That is, people who really know the Lord and have been following the Lord or faithful to God in, in ministry and volunteering and coming to worship and all of that, but just have lost their fire. They've lost their zeal. They've lost their, their passion. And maybe they've just been weighed down by all of the doom scrolling and all the negativity in the world. And we need to talk about that. We talk about that plenty at Grantham, right? I mean, just, we heard it this morning, Turkey and Syria and all this. But maybe people that also are failing to see how God is at work and spending more time thinking about the evil and the sin in the world. These people wake up. 
They wake up to God's presence. They catch the fire. The second one here, Keller says, nominal Christians get converted. And one way you may see this is people in the church have been, you know, they've been in the church their whole life. <clears throat> they could be board members. And I'm not thinking of any specific board members here, but <laughs> they could be board members. They could be the church treasurer. And I'm not thinking of you, Phil Tuma. I'm just saying, they could be people that we know and are good people, but have never had their heart regenerated by Christ before. You know, they're just Christian in name only, and they're, they're coming to Jesus. And then thirdly, Keller says non-Christians come to Christ and specifically says Christians that are in hard-to-reach places or non-Christians in hard-to-reach places, non-believers who you just thought they're goners (laughs) are coming to Christ. And then Keller goes on and he gives us five theological marks of revival. Let's think about each one of these together. This is evidence that there is a revival taking place. He says, number one, the gospel is recovered. What do you mean? The gospel is recovered. It's recovered from legalism. Now, one way you might think about this, because we've talked about this not too long ago here at Grantham, the the centered set church, right? You remember this? Remember the graphic? We're all in different places in our journey, but is our hearts aimed at Jesus? Is our hearts oriented at Christ? And that's that centered approach. We're all at different places. Come as you are, right? Come as you are. And let's fall and worship Jesus together. But on the, on the one extreme, you have the bounded church that likes to set clear lines of who's in and out. How many of you have experienced that kind of church before? A lot of hurt and harm comes from that. And they're usually very legalistic. And so he's saying we recover the gospel from that. And he also says on the, <clears throat> the other extreme we've talked about here is the more liberal kind of thing. And I mean theologically, more than politically here. But the that liberal side of things, the fuzzy church. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Nobody's going to say anything to you. Let's just, let's just all kind of get along. That fuzzy church. Uh, th- this is what he means, to recover the gospel from that sort of liberalism that anything goes. You see both of those extremes, the gospel being recovered from it. And this is what we're all about here at Grantham. And this, is, this is at the heart of what we talk about when we talk about third way and as it deals with politics, but with everything else too. So it's a recovery of the gospel from these things. Number two, he says it's a real sense of humility and repentance, which we are seeing come out of Asbury. A sense of humility, of of brokenness, of a willingness to confess our sins. You know, it just, sometimes it just blows me away that folks, you know, they, they, they come to church and they don't want to be vulnerable. Like, this is what we're about here. We all know you don't have it together, so don't pretend you have it together. It's true. Number two, that's that sense of humility and repentance. And number three, the felt presence of God in public worship. Worship, there's an anointing to it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, that when, when this is happening in your church, when you're in that, that centered set church and Christ is in the middle and, and, and the Spirit is having His way, when people come in, they, they know they've been in the presence of God. And they may come with all their doubts, and they may come with skepticism or even cynicism, but they cannot leave without saying, I, I've been in the presence of something supernatural. Number four, he says, church growth comes through new converts, another mark of revival. And then number five, extraordinary kingdom-centered prayer. And Keller would say, we're not just doing maintenance prayer, Right? God, help, help, my, help my bad knee, help so-and-so who's sick. And, look, those are good things to pray for. 
But we can get caught up in just thinking about like what's right in front of us and not thinking of the bigger picture and the prayers for renewal and revival and awakening. That God wants to bless the whole world. This king, kingdom-centered approach. And that Jesus, of course, gave us that. The one model prayer he gave us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these are marks of revival. And so here's, here's what we should do. Like we, again, we can't manufacture it. Uh, we can't use a method that's come before. You can't get into this, to Narnia the same way taught twice. But we can work the ground like a farmer. You can till the ground, you can plant the seeds and ask God to send the rain. And we can do this this way. This is what you do to experience revival. You work at these things. That is, we work at recovering the gospel from legalism, that, that, that bounded church, and recover it from the fuzzy church and the theological liberalism. Is it, you know, virgin birth, pff, resurrection, pff, that didn't really happen. No, it did. We believe it. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed here at Grantham Church. We work at it by, by trying to be humble and, and repentant and always asking us, what's, what's God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? We work at it through this felt presence of God in public worship by coming and being honest and like Isaiah, coming to the temple and expecting God to show up. I wonder, I wonder if Isaiah was praying that day on, on his way to church that God would show up. How many of us do that? <laughs> of course, God brings the growth, but we could bring him to church. And we can do more than maintenance prayer. We can begin to intentionally pray that God would send the rain. Amen. Some of you may have noticed this past week, which I thought was interesting, the timing of this. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an article. It was published in The Atlantic. Uh, a member of our congregation actually brought this to my attention. Once I got through the paywall, I was able to read it. And I'm glad I did. The article is entitled, American Christianity is Due for a Revival. This was published on February 5th. What happened to Asbury started on February 8th. Maybe it's a coincidence. Or maybe it's God. Keller says this in the article. He says, the church can grow. And did you notice the subtitle there? Our society is secularizing. Christianity seems to be in a long-term decline, but renewal is possible. He says, though the church can grow in secular, pluralistic society, right, this post-Christian world, and, and I, Keller would also say this, right, we're not trying to get that back. Folks, let it go. It's gone. Stop trying to fight the culture wars. Fight fire with fire, that kind of thing. Stop it. In the name of Jesus, stop it. Accept what has come. Adjust your sails. Learn what it means to live as people in exile. And so with that in mind, Keller says we can grow. We can grow. If the church learns, number one, how to speak compellingly to non-Christian people. That's one of the things that we've got to do. How to speak compellingly to non-Christian people. How to share our faith through, through friendship and, and using a vernacular in humility 
and gentleness that connects with people where they are, helping to point them to Christ. Number two, he says, if the church can hold the historic Christian teaching and work for justice, like detach this stuff from political parties, folks. Justice and righteousness go together. That is Old Testament, that is New Testament. He says, we, we, gotta, we, gotta, we gotta recover that. We gotta hold those things together. It's not an either or, it's both. Number three, he says, if the church embraces multiculturalism, that's something I've already starting to see as long as the revival in Asbury, whatever you wanna call it, is happening, it's gotten more diverse. I watched one yesterday where the black folks were, were leading it, and there was a mixed choir in the background. He says the church has to embrace multiculturalism, not see it as a threat, but a blessing. Number four, he says if the church can innovate and change while still holding to orthodoxy, still holding to like the Apostles' Creed. Number five, he says if the church will respond to the modern self and secularism with the gospel. Oh, so many people, and this seems to be the driving force even of Generation Z, they're just, they're buckling under the pressure of American identity formation, where you got to prove yourself, where you, you, you got to be somehow unique and different, and, the, and the, the greatest good is simply being authentic and posting it on TikTok or something. It's not working. They're tired of it. They're exhausted. We have to have an answer for this, that the way that the, the world shapes identity by, by how pretty you are or how much money you make. It's not working. Instead, we, we, we should be able to acknowledge, as Paul did in, in, at the Areopagus on Mars Hill, and say, I see that you're religious. I see the goodness in your heart. I see your, the longing for that void to be filled, that something's missing. Can I humbly submit to you, the answers aren't there. They're in Christ. This is what we've got to be able to do. If the church can respond to the message of secularism and the modern self with the gospel. Know how to articulate it. Change will come. Renewal is possible. In addition, Keller says this. He says this at the end of the article. He said, for revival to come in the U.S., three things must happen. Number one, the church must escape political captivity. The church must escape political captivity. We must denounce Christian nationalism and all of the pastors and leaders that support it. Can I get an amen? amen? It is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. And may I remind you that I'm an unaffiliated voter. And that's done on purpose. Because I don't believe that you can put the gospel into one political party. You cannot fit Jesus into the donkey or the elephant. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. And number two, he says, if the U.S. is going to experience revival, if it's going to come to the United States of America, we must distinguish the gospel from moralism. It's not about a, about a set of morals and values. We want you to adopt our values. Uh, we want you to accept our view of this and that or the other. Rather, it is about this proclamation which is ancient from the very foundations in the beginning of the church. It goes like this. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus 
is Lord. He's not just your personal savior. He's Lord and not just of your life. He's Lord of the cosmos, which means that what he says goes. That, that means we should align our lives with his design, not what we think, and we don't get to make it up as we go. The, the Lord is the Lord. Caesar is not. Jesus is. And if we want revival to come to the U.S., number three, he says, we must unite. That is the church, big C, must unite in extraordinary prayer. You know, I have to be honest, I'm watching, I'm watching these videos. One of them is because I'm just so drawn in, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that I've experienced the same thing they are, but I have, ex I have experienced the Lord the last couple of days, folks. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I'm eating a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch. <laughs> and I just feel the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And he can speak to you. And I, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm watching, you know, what's happening there and, and almost kind of like with gritted teeth, like hoping I'm not going to see anything that derails it, you know, and something that's ugly or crazy. But I haven't yet. And what, I'm, what I am seeing, though, so far, there's no talk of partisan politics. There's no talk of political agendas. It's just people are being floored, some literally, by the presence of God, and they all don't think and agree on all of the issues. They're coming together in extraordinary prayer, not just doing maintenance prayer. They're praying, the church is crying out, and we must cry out too. You see, this is at the heart of that familiar Old Testament passage. And I know that this was for ancient Israel, but it's still for us. And I want to be clear. His people is not America. His people is the church. We must read it that way. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. <laughs> I, will, I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. It's a promise from God. A promise from God. And so this is the invitation this morning, brothers and sisters, that we humble ourselves. And we ask God to do in us and through us what we cannot do ourselves. Lord knows we can't. We can't. So that God would send his spirit to renew and revive his people, the church. The Holy Spirit would bring about a movement, even an awakening throughout the world. And folks, I've already started to read the reports revival breaking out in other parts of the world. I saw one this morning. It was happening in Uganda. So where do we begin? All of what you heard me say this morning, I hope you hear my heart, and all that you've seen, I'm not trying to manufacture anything. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I just want to be faithful. Tell you what the Lord's laid on my heart. So where do we begin? Where do you begin? Where do I begin? You know, the Christian writer, philosopher, G.K. Chesterton, so you know him. He's once asked to enter an essay contest in response to the question, what is wrong with the world? 
he sent in a two-word response. I am. And so with the psalmist, we begin our prayers this way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you adopt that prayer this morning? In a moment, I'm going to close this message in prayer. And after that, I'm going to invite us all to enter a corporate time of prayer together. On our screens, you'll see uh, some prompts to guide us. Here they are. Ask God to search your heart. Confess your sins to him. Pray for the Spirit to help you repent of your sins. And follow him. Pray for Grantham Church and the churches in our region. Pray that God would pour out his Spirit on his people and sin renewal and revival for the sake of the gospel. And pray for our country and our world. Pray for the lost and the hurting. Ask God to awaken souls to know his love and grace. And here's, here's what I want to invite you to do. You can pray by yourself at your seat. There's no pressure. You just do, do what you feel comfortable with. You can pray at your seat. You come to these altars. You can gather with a small group of people around you. Maybe you're sitting around family or friends. Or maybe you want to find your small group. If you're in a small group at Grantham, you want to pray with them. You can do that. I invite you to do one of these. If you're in need of special prayer, Pastor Melissa and I, we're going to stand up front here. And we're available to talk with you and pray with you if you'd rather do that. And so I want to close, uh, I want to close here this message in prayer and then I'll invite you to come forward. The band will come, the, the worship team will come and they'll play some music silently and when I sense it's time, I'll close that, that time of prayer. Father, oh, send your Holy Spirit. We know what's happening in Asbury is and in other places now is not bound there. Though we see some taking that fire like a, a candle from a bonfire to start another bonfire, we know we don't need the candle here, Lord. We've, we've got the Holy Spirit present, available. We just need to call upon you. So, Lord, would you lead us in this time of prayer? I pray that no one would feel inhibited, that we wouldn't put up walls, that we wouldn't let cynicism drown out what you want to do. We would just surrender to you in whatever way you're calling us to. Just have your way, Lord, in this time of prayer. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Please, church, do what you feel comfortable with. Pray where you're at. Pray with a group. Pray at these altars. Just be obedient. Amen. Let's pray together.